All right, so Mark 8, starting in verse 22. This is page 1566 if you've got a pew Bible, I think. Mark 8, 22, and I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter, though I'm not going to preach all the way to the end of the chapter, really. We'll circle back around to 31 to 38 next week, probably, depending on what happens. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do the people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me, in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. It's pretty serious stuff, right? Yeah. In, um, I don't know about you, but, um, verses 22 to 26, the healing of the blind man in Bethsaida, um, to me, that's, that's one of Jesus's, Jesus' weirdest miracles, right? That's pretty weird. I mean, the spitting on somebody's face notwithstanding. The fact that he has to do it twice, you know? It's kind of like sending your watch back to get refurbished because it has a manufacturer's warranty problem, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, I shouldn't have to do this. It's the only one like that. There's no other miracle of Jesus where he has to, go do, has to go at it twice, right? I mean, there are places in the Bible where people line up so that they can just touch him. Like, you remember the, there's the woman with the, like, 12 years of bleeding or whatever it was, and she just sneaks up behind him and touches his clothes, and she's totally healed, right? I mean, this is a guy who's raised a dead girl already, in, just in Mark's gospel, right? I mean, there's another place where people all line up to touch him, and anybody who touches him is healed, just anybody. It's just blanket statement. Everybody's healed. Right? And so, and you get to this passage. I mean, this blindness. I mean, this is, this is child's play. 
for Jesus. I mean, given what we've found out so far. But, you know, here he is, and it's, he, he, he works with this guy twice, you know? And here's, here's why this is important. Because through the center of Mark's gospel is, a theme, is the theme of blindness. But it's not blindness of blind people, it's blindness of all people. The, the, the issue is spiritual blindness. It's that we think we see and we don't see. And in this, in like four verses, right, 22 to 26, um, Mark uses eight different Greek words for sight. Right? I mean, if you, if you look at the passage, like, and then he saw, and he could see the people walking around, and his eyes were completely opened, and, and, and. Like, there's this huge focus on, hey, this guy can see, and he couldn't before, right? Now, this, isn't, this is critical because the difference between a blind guy and us isn't that we can see and he can't, spiritually speaking. The difference is, is that he knows he can't see, and we're under the delusion that we can see. That's the issue Jesus is getting at. That's the one he's working on. And more than that is the issue that once we come to believe, we think we see, and we still don't really see. It's not a, before I was a Christian, I thought I could see, and I couldn't. And then I realized I couldn't see. And then I believed in Jesus. And then I could just totally see. And it was fantastic. Not really. Not really. We see more. There's a certain something we have to see to get converted. But that doesn't mean we see. Like Jesus sees. Right? So, why is that? Um... Does this thing work? Let's try, let me, let's try the, the, the thing. Okay, here we go. Alright, um, go to slide two. <laughs> there we go. Um, there's a sermon that my brother did on religious epistemology at the University of California at Davis. Um, but there's this, there's this point in it that I really liked about why we don't see. Because it's chapter 8. They still don't get Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, what's he supposed to do? Right? Shoot fireball out of his nose? I mean, I mean, think about it. Like, what? You know, it's, it's kind of like, right, remember, right before they get on the boat, the Pharisees come and they go, show us a sign. And he's like, show you a sign? Seriously? No. Because he's done like a thousand of them. I mean, everywhere he goes, there's signs and signs and signs and signs and signs. And he shows up and they're like, show us a sign. And you're like, I mean, it's like, it's like going to an NBA dunk competition and walking up to LeBron James after he won and say, can you touch the rim? Can you really get up there and touch the rim? I mean, it's ridiculous. And he's like, no, because, it, and why? Is it because he doesn't love them? No, it's just, he's not, it doesn't matter what he does. If you, if you, if you aren't going to see it, you aren't going to see it. And you see, it's, it's really easy to get offended by that and go, well, that's kind of mean and self-righteous to just say we're just totally blind. Like to say everybody's just totally blind except you people who think this already. Well, hold on. It's, it's just normal humanity, okay? We don't see what we're not looking for, okay? So my brother's the same age as Drew Barrymore, who was in E.T., 
Okay, to give you some, so like, that's how old we are. So yeah, I don't remember Nixon. And one of the things that, <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> um, there's this scene in the movie E.T. where um, the mom doesn't know about the alien yet. And so she comes into the kid's bedroom, and so they're trying to hide him. And so they hide him in with all these stuffed animals. And so there's all these, like, plush stuffed toys and E.T.'s face. And she walks in, and she, like, looks around and talks to the kids or whatever, and she doesn't see him. Right? And so this is, this is from my—this is a quote from my brother's talk. One of the first movies I went to see as a kid was E.T. Now— I'm the same, same age as Drew Barrymore, so I'll give you some idea of my age when I went to see it. But there's a scene in the film where the kids are hiding an alien from their mother. And the mother walks into the bedroom, and E.T. hides in the stuffed animals. But he's a brown, leathery alien with this enormous dome. So plush kitty cats are not exactly stellar camouflage. But she looks right at him, and she doesn't see him. Because when you look at a pile of toys in a child's room— you expect to see toys, not an extraterrestrial being. You see what you expect to see, right? It's, it's not like it's this weird self-righteous thing. It's, re, it's just human, human beings. I mean, I don't know how many guys, and maybe it's true of girls, um, if, do you guys have the saying surface looker in your house? If you have this, like, I'll ask my wife where something is, and she'll say, oh, it's in the blah, blah, blah pantry. And I'll go and I'll look at the blah, blah, blah pantry, and it's not there. And I'll go to my wife and I'll go, baby, I don't think it's in there. Do you have a second guess or something? She's like, oh. And she'll go over and she'll, and it's right there. And, and now that she's, the minute she opens the door, I go, oh, there it is, crap. And she's like, <laughs> and she hands it to me and she goes, surface looker. Right? It's a saying. So whenever my wife does it, like once in 30 years, I'll be like, surface looker. Um. Because that's what, that's what human beings are. We have a particular want, we want something, and the whole world is colored by what we're looking for. Because there's just, there's too much in the world to just be looking for everything. I mean, it's the whole idea of like being open-minded. It's impossible. It's impossible to be entirely open-minded. There's too much stimuli. Your brain would just explode and ooze out your ears in little droplets. I mean, you have to have filters that focus your attention on things. It's impossible for that not to be the case. When you're driving, you don't—you're not looking for little birdies on the side of the road because the cars slamming on their brakes in front of you with student drivers are what you need to be focused on. And so you can drive by—sometimes you, you can drive by a fire sometimes and be like, there was a fire? And it's not because you're unobservant or closed-minded. It's just because you're focusing on what's right in front of you. And what's right in front of you is what's important to you. So we tend to have slightly self-centered sight. And, and we see things in relationship to how they relate to us. And when Jesus comes on the scene, the issue is how the God of everything relates to everything. And he's kind of too big a category for us to metabolize. Do you see the issue here? And so we don't see him. We see him in relationship to something we already see. So if you look at the passage where Jesus says to the disciples, okay, who do they say I am? They say, well, some say John the Baptist. Who is John the Baptist? John the Baptist was the latest thing, right? He's the latest thing. And then they say, well, some say Elijah. Well, what was Elijah? Elijah was the biggest thing that had ever been, right? And then others say, Others say, one of the prophets. Who are the prophets? They were all the people who were the big deals. So, you see what's happening? 
Jesus is something. He's a big deal. And so they just relate him to the Jewish history. They just go, well, he's either the latest thing, back, or he's the biggest thing, Elijah, come back, or he's one of the prophets, maybe, who's come back to life or something. God sent him back to us. I mean, he's something big, but they have no ability to conceptualize how big. And that's what Jesus is on about. He's like, you guys don't get it. You don't see it. It's a lot bigger than that. Um, and I brought these in. I don't know if this will help you, but it's a, it's a little bit like what you might call lens confusion, right? You've got to have something that interprets it. Like, so my mother-in-law left these behind at my house. You like that? Right? So you can, you can, if I try to look at this, the lens of this magnifying glass with these crappy Walmart glasses, um, they're actually a little cloudy, and it's hard to look through a lens at a lens, you know? But I could examine these glasses with the magnifying glass because that's what this is for. And so if you get the lens that you're supposed to see everything else with, on the outside of the lens you're trying to see everything with, it doesn't work. It's a lens inversion. And one of the things Jesus is saying is you can't, you can't get your agenda here and then Jesus out here. It doesn't, the lenses don't line up. It won't work. You won't see better. If you, if you get them like this, where Jesus is first and he defines everything, then you get your agenda and lens here, it works. You can see clearly. But as long as it's like this, even though you got both lenses in place, you still don't really see. It's a lens confusion. It's one person nodding. I'm glad that was helpful for you. Okay. Um, the, the point is, is that in these middle chapters of Mark's gospel— is that Jesus is fighting for his life for the spiritual sight of his disciples. He is, at the end of Mark's gospel, he's going to fight, he's going to fight for his life to die for all of humanity. But right now, the, his great battle is to get his disciples to see which, incidentally, I think is the continuing great battle of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and among all people. To get us all to really see unbelievers, to really see Jesus as the Christ, and believers to see what it means that Jesus is the Christ in ever-deepening levels. So, man. Yeah, we're going to get a new one of these this week. Um, Real spiritual sight, then, is one of Jesus' really hard-fought-for things. We need, so we need to see, ultimately, three things. One, we need to see something about our blindness. We need to see, secondly, something about that Jesus is the Christ. We need to see what we're supposed to see. And the third thing we need to see is, we need to, ultimately, we're going to have to find out what it really means and recognize finding out what it really means that Jesus is the Christ is going to be a process, not just to become a Christian, but after becoming a Christian, and that both of those really end up being processes. Because if accepting Jesus as the Christ is a momentary thing, somebody might get into it, and that's cool. I'm not, I'm not against leading somebody to Jesus in 12 minutes. I'm not, I'm, I'm for leading people to Jesus, okay? If you can do it in 12 minutes, that's super. But that really says more about the person who's getting led to Jesus, the kind of person they are. They're impetuous. They're ready to go for it. They want to try something. It really strikes them, and they're ready to, they're ready to move. That's cool. School. And oftentimes those are the people who are more impetuous about leaving Jesus later. Two weeks later, three months later. I mean, people's personalities, some people come slow to Jesus, and then once they're in, you couldn't drag them away with hooks in their flesh. 
Other people are quick to Jesus, quick away from Jesus. Others are quick to Jesus and they just stay on board the whole— I mean, people are different. But, but it's, it's a process for everybody. Nobody comes in fully, like, sees, like he's seeing out of Jesus' optic, optic nerve. Okay, that doesn't happen. So there's always a process, whether it feels short or feels longer. And we need to recognize that unless we're in the process of seeing better, recognizing that no matter where we are or who we are, blindness remains. And Jesus is the only lens getting us out of there. We're not in the game. Does that make sense? All right. So let's zoom through those three things. I have no idea where I'm going. So the, f- the first is, is that Jesus fights really hard to, um, okay? But it's really hard to show us our blindness. Now, in John's gospel, John chapter 9 is where John talks about this. And I would really encourage you to go read that. Late, you know, later today or something, probably not right now. Um, but what happens in John 9 is there's this guy who's blind from birth. And Jesus heals him. And this starts this whole argument with the Pharisees. And it really ends up being about the fact that the Pharisees are blind. And this guy can see, and he believes in Jesus. And there's this, like, ironic counter-metaphor there, okay? But this is how it ends. In verse 39 and 41, it says this. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now, what he means by that is, because he's talking to the Pharisees, he's saying, those who say they see— they will be shown to be blind, right? Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. You see what he's doing? The issue isn't the fact that human A is blind. The issue is that human A who's blind thinks she can see. That's the issue. That's why he or she will remain blind, because she thinks she can see. He thinks he can see. And as long as we think we can see, there's no possibility of seeing. It's none. In in verse 22, it says they they dragged this guy to Jesus, and they begged him to touch him and to heal him. If we don't get to the point where we recognize we don't see it, it's not going to happen. And here's why. If, if you come and you say, oh, yeah, know the Jesus thing, it sounds pretty decent. Let's, let's try it out. So you try out the Jesus thing. Here's what you're going to find out. You're going to keep listening to your own counsel on what makes sense instead of getting a totally new lens in front of your face. And so everything Jesus does looks ridiculous because you're still essentially blind. You're still really, you're still really doing this with Jesus. And as long as you do that, all this talk about dying to save your soul, like, you know, like losing your life so that you can save it, that doesn't sound right. That's not going to work. Or this sort of thing like, you know, uh, dealing with your enemy, you suffer to win over your enemy. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like it's going to work. I mean, there's all these things that Jesus is all about, and you're just kind of like, what? Right? It doesn't make sense. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to act like that. And so essentially what you'll do is you'll come, but then you'll leave. You'll always leave because Jesus will, and the more you press him, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. The minute you go, wait a second. Okay, wait a second. Let me totally look newly at this thing about life. Okay, when I look at it from Jesus' perspective, I get this. Like, like for example, next week we'll talk about this a lot more, dying. 
You can, you will never overcome sin until you count yourself as dead. It's the only way. The only way to really overcome sin is to really believe that you unto yourself are dead. That, that me, as I know myself, wanting the things I want, desiring the things I want, having the agenda that I want, until that is dead, I can never be the sort of loving person, the sort of gracious person, the sort of compassionate person, because there will, I will always be at war with myself, because my agenda will never submit to that. And so the only way to save my life is to lose it. It's absolutely right, and it makes perfect sense when you look at it this way. But it'll never make sense if you look at it the other way. Does that make sense? You've got you've to submit to a renewing of your mind. Okay, that's all the time we have for that. Except for this. Um, <laughs> I think that's the point of this parable about bl- the blindness. This is why it takes two steps. Now, f- now track this. Just before it, Jesus says, right, he says, you guys are blind. Right? Do you have ears but fear to fail to hear? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do your hearts still not understand? Are your hearts still hard? Right? And then what happens? They get out of a boat. They're in Bethsaida. And what happens? He heals this guy with two tries. Right? Now, then what happens? He asks them who they say he is. And what do they say? You're the Christ. Right? So they get it, but they don't get it. Because two verses later, who's Satan? Or, right? Peter is. So he gets that Jesus is the Christ, but two verses later, he's Satan. So what, what does that mean? He sees, but he doesn't see, right? He sees, but he doesn't see. He gets the category. He sees the silhouette, but he doesn't see clearly, right? This is an interpretive rocket science, right? Mark puts that, that miracle right in front of the disciples taking two steps to see from blindness. Right? Just, all you gotta do is put it in its context and you're like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Right? Jesus is making a point. He's about to show his disciples that sometimes even being cured of blindness isn't a momentary one-step process. Even if you get the category, you may not, still not understand the category's content. People throw all kinds of vocabulary around. I mean, think about the Christians you've met in your life that know tons of Christian vocabulary but couldn't live out any of those categories to save their life. They can tell you all about Christian sanctification, but they haven't done squat to actually grow as a Christian. They're, I mean, since they were converted. Or somebody who talks about sacrificial love and can tell you all the and memori- has verses memorized, like from Mark 8, about losing your life and blah, blah, blah. And then you, but you look at their life and there's no evidence that anything has died. Right? They, they've got the category— They've, and they've assented to the category, and they've put some faith in the category, but they have no content in the category. They, they have no idea what the category means. And so they just free associate some meaning from their experience into the category, and they assume that's what it means. Right? And so what Jesus is saying is, okay, it's one thing to get the category. Then you can see, you can be like, I believe in Jesus. Well, that's fantastic. What does that even mean? Who is Jesus? What does it mean that he's the Christ? What does faith mean? What does believe mean? Does it just mean you say you believe? Or wait, where are you going with that? What does that do to you? How does it change you? What does it mean to die? What does that mean? Or does it just mean that when you buy your next new car, you're going to get the leather seats, but not the heated leather seats? Right? 
I mean, what, what does it mean? I mean, I think that Jesus wants us to have heated low seats in Wisconsin. Just tell you right now. Just buy a used car with heated leather seats. That's all I'm saying if you want to follow Dave Ramsey. That's just Dave Ramsey. That's not Jesus, okay now? But you know what I'm saying? Like, it, I mean, don't you get annoyed when you listen to the news and when you listen to people debating things publicly and they're always throwing out these categories and this vocabulary and these things and there's, there's no relationship to what they mean or how they function or whether or not they're true or whether this is a good use of them, right? It's— it annoys the stew out of me. I'm like, what? I just, I can't listen to this because all, all I'll do is just sit there in the living room saying, what does that even mean? 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 I can't watch it. Because I just feel like my intelligence is constantly being insulted. Like, I'm a big idiot. That if you just fling a category at me, then I'll be intellectually intimidated enough that I'll just bow down to whatever you say. Listen, I've been a Christian too long for that. Listen, when I, I, when I signed up for Christianity, people started disapproving of me, and I've been living under the disapproval of the majority of the world since I was 15 or 16, okay? You can disapprove me as long as days long. I'm just used to being disapproved of by the majority of the humanity all the time. And that does something to you. But because, I mean, because we're supposed to be a people that go, what, what does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Because that's the first step of sight, right? The first step of sight is to see Jesus. I mean, Mark doesn't—John tells us, Mark shows us, right? They go, oh, you're the Christ. And then in two verses, Mark shows us they have no idea what that means. They have no idea what that means. Because Second Temple Judaism— for 500 years had been developing this concept of the Messiah that isn't found in the Bible. There's little bits here and there, and they had, they had built this whole like, conception of Messiah. And so the minute they went, oh, you're the Christ, Jesus knew darn well they had no idea what that biblically meant. They, they believed that the Messiah was going to be the, the God-appointed chosen king who would be the savior of his people. That's exactly what Jesus was, but it, it meant exactly the opposite of what everybody thought it meant. Everybody thought it meant victory over the Romans, right? Everybody thought that. Even the disciples. We're all going to win. No, you're all going to die, right? I mean, that's what Jesus says. You think you're all going to win? You're not. You're all going to die. I'm going to die. They're going to crucify me. And guess what you get instead of a new title? You get a cross too. I mean— I mean, it's a little like opening the maximum security prison. You see, see that? See that hallway going down to the, to the uh, electric chair or the lethal injection? That's the way of salvation. Just, I'm going to walk there. You just go ahead and follow me right down there. We'll just go together. How about that? And you're going to have to, and you're going to have to make that resolution every day. Do you notice how the point in this passage is not, if you believe in Jesus once, you're going to go to heaven forever? Now, listen, I believe that, but functionally, psychologically, what Jesus knew is for us to live out that one-time faith, every day we were going to have to get out in the bed and be like, I'm a dead man. There is an, an anointed, chosen Savior King who exists over all things, who went to the cross on my behalf and calls me after him, and my agenda has to die right now at 545 or 652 or whenever you get out of bed, it has to die right now again today. Or, guess what the agenda for the day is going to be? Something other than Jesus, right? 
So then lastly, is that Jesus doesn't just fight hard so that we can see that he's the Christ. He fights hard so that we can see what that really means. I mean, we, get, we as Christians, we get so bent over backwards um, when we struggle through things because deep down what we really believe is, is that if Jesus had something to teach us through suffering or through difficulty or through life in general or through personal sacrifice to help others, I mean, didn't he really teach us what he needed to teach us when we got saved? Like, when we, like, isn't that, shouldn't suffering precede salvation to get our attention enough so that we'll believe in Jesus and follow him? And then what really is the use of it after that? I mean, we're Christians, right? I mean, the, the whole, but the whole conception of the, New, of the New Testament is that conversion actually begins the transformation of our minds. It begins this transition to a new kind of life, a new kind of thinking about everything. And so Jesus is just getting started. He's just getting started. And he is fighting, not, he's fighting for our lives every single day so that we can see. I mean, why do you think we call devils deceivers? I mean, think about that. I mean, the whole, the whole context of spiritual warfare is deception sight. Light, darkness. That the, the, the conflict every day, mentally, spiritually, and psychologically for us, is so that we can see that the Spirit is drawing us on and on and on to see and our sinful nature and devils in the world, the sinful generation, as Jesus calls, is drawing us back into self-deception. It's, it's a conflict of sight and blindness. That's what it is. And every day, if we're going to spiritually fight for our lives, we're, we're fighting not just to be or to act. We're fighting to see. And that only works if we exist ongoing with the premise that we don't see. And what that requires is an enormous amount of humility, I think, to recognize that no matter how far along we are, that there, we, there are some areas we really fundamentally still don't see. I mean, I, I'm just astounded at how basic some of the lessons I, I keep learning are. Lessons I thought I've had under my belt for years. Very fundamental lessons. And I just, like being, like waking up in the morning and dying. Right then. You know, because I don't like that lesson. I don't want to take that one again, and I fail that quiz a lot. And it's a very fundamental lesson. But we use other lessons to go back on other lessons. It's crazy how we do it. Okay, let me, let me just end this way. Don't worry, I'll end for a long time. Um, I've kind of circled around this a little bit. Let me, let me say here are three take-homes that I think that we can take from this passage that hopefully will be encouraging. The first is, is that knowledge of our blindness should comfort us in God's compassion. That God is extremely compassionate. Um, one of the ways evangelical Christians or Bible-believing Christians make themselves more and more religious is by essentially believing that we're saved by faith, but that we're saved by our faith, meaning the validity and strength and content and fortitude of our faith. And that's false. 
that's false. If, if God credited righteousness to us on the basis of how faithfully we had faith, or how truthfully we believed the truth, we would all, we would just all go to hell. I mean, there would just be, our faith is relatively pitiful. We are not saved by faith. Okay, we're not. We are saved by Christ and the cross of Christ and his, his death given for us as sinful people. So, so our faith contributes nothing to that. It only accesses it. That's it. And our faith is terrible. Okay? And that should be comforting to you because otherwise you will, maybe even without knowing it, try so hard to have faith and you'll essentially fall back into trying to be saved by works. But instead of explicitly saying, I'm going to earn God's favor through what I do, you will do it obliquely by saying, I'm going to believe so well because I'm saved by faith. No, you are saved if you believe through Jesus' amazing death on the cross for you, accessed by yours in my pitiful, blind faith. And that, that really ought to encourage you. You know? That encourages me a lot. Okay, the second thing I think we can take away is, is that Knowledge of our blindness should help us with our blindness. I mean, the good news is if we go, oh, I wonder why he touched him twice. Oh, maybe recovering from blindness is kind of a process. So there it is right after that. Wait a second. They were, even after they knew Jesus was the Christ, they were still fundamentally blind. But I believe Jesus is the Christ. Maybe I'm still fundamentally blind somehow. Yeah! Yeah, exactly. But think of how that much that can help. If you know you're blind, if you know one of the—because that blindness will create doubt, it'll create fear, it'll create—it'll create all kinds of psychological collateral damage. And if you know that behind some of that is just the fact you don't see it right— so, like, you're like, I'm suffering too much. God is mean. And if you just, if you know that really behind that is you don't, you know you don't see it right. You know you don't see God's providence right. You know you don't see the, the web of how that, that suffering is functioning right. You know you don't under, you don't see how your heart is operating right. If you know you don't see all that right, then your, your, your doubt and fear-inducing assumptions don't hold as much weight because you go, you know what? There's, there may be a fundamental area in there where I just don't see. I just don't see it right. And so I'm gonna, I need to back up and trust the Savior and begin to reapproach it and ask him how I can see the composite parts of that doubt differently. Because I don't see, and I know I don't see. Help me, Lord, help me see. Or go to somebody who sees better than you. And then third is, um, knowledge of our blindness should make us want to make this a place of process, meaning the church or the body of Christ. We should want this place to be a place of process. Um, and there's, there's two ways that'll really help us. One is that it'll, it'll dramatically decrease our, our self-righteousness as believers. Dramatically decrease our self-righteousness. Because if we recognize that the faith that saved us is pretty bad faith to begin with. It's the, it's, the it's the glorious cross of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead that saves us. We recognize that we're really not morally better on this side of the line of faith. We're, we're justified. Our, our righteousness is given. It's a gift from God. That's it, right? We're not, 
not actually righteous. We don't. And then we go, well, we're still fundamentally blind, right? So we won't turn to a non-Christian and say, you know, the difference between you and me is I can see and you don't. That's not the difference. It's not the difference. The difference is, is that I've, I, Jesus has made known this little piece, but I still recognize that, that the, the th- we're more alike than we are different, in a way. In terms of our status in relationship to Christ's righteousness, a believer and unbeliever are in very different statuses. But mentally, one of the things that we share with our unbelieving neighbors is that we're very blind. And if we can recognize that, it'll make us dramatically less, less self-righteous towards people that don't know as much as we do, aren't as far as long as we are, including those who don't believe in Jesus at all. And the way that'll work out in how we do evangelism is we'll recognize that not everybody's going to respond to an immediate evangelistic approach. Some people will, but a lot of people won't. So I need to preach an announcement here for a minute. Okay, you ready for that? Okay. So we're going st- to do, do Alpha again. Here, here at High Point. Um, Alpha is a, um, well, the way we're going to do it is gonna be, it's a seven-week introduction to the Christian faith where people can come um, who are irreligious and even religiously antagonistic against Jesus, and they can go and have a nice meal with people who um, aren't going to talk to them about religion over dinner, and then um, they watch a video about um, some issue related to the meaning of life, particularly in relationship to Jesus, and then there's a 45-minute discussion where the small group leader doesn't doesn't cram Christian doctrine down their throat. They just go, so what do you think of that? And they just, you just let them talk. That's it. That's all that happens. Um, now the result usually is that you get a bunch of non-Christians over seven weeks talking themselves into becoming Christians by themselves. Um, but the, but the, the benefit of that is they feel really unmanipulated by it. They feel like they got to go through the process. Because the minute we go and we go like, you need to believe right now, they, they rightly say, wait a second, there's a whole, I need to metabolize this. Like there's a process of thinking through my objections and thinking through these claims and are they valid claims? And then what would that mean for my life? And am I going to get in on that? And okay, like that's a process. If it's not a process, they're not thinking very clearly, right? So, he, so I think that if we recognize what Jesus is saying here in Mark 8, we, sh- we would want to be about that. We would want to say, how can we make High Point Church a place where instead of trying to grow as a church through attracting people from other churches, how can we take the space we've got and lead people to Jesus? And how can we re- remember that the curing of blindness is often a process? It's one we're going to have to hang with and go with, recognizing that it's Jesus that does it, so they need they got to hear about Jesus, right? Um, and so what can we do? And I think one of the things we can do is we can do Alpha. We can invite people that we know, who we know are not going to respond to some 20-minute gospel presentation over lunch, into a process of thinking through some of these things. Okay, so can I tell you what I need for us to do this right? Because we have to do this together. So here's what, here's what we need. I need four or five really fun people because we're going to have to do something for kids. Okay, I've already got small group leaders. I had to handpick those because we can't have Gabby people like me leading them. All those people have to be handpicked, okay? Um, but we need some fun people to hang out with kids for seven weeks because if the kids have a great time, then people will come back, right? And we need some people to help with logistics. That's really it. And we need some people willing to take a chance to invite people to come to it. So right after Easter, you're going to have an opportunity to invite people into the process of investigating Jesus and talking about the meaning of life and doing it in a non-pressured environment so that they can work through 
all the questions that they've got. We really think this is going to be helpful for folks. And um, I, I want you to consider how you can be part of that, whether it's by inviting somebody or whether it's by hanging out with kids. That's what I'm going to end. I think that's what I'm doing. I'm going to probably kick kickballs for Jesus and see who I can invite so that people can enter. Because, I mean, think about the disciples. They got like three years of process, you know? I think we ought to offer people seven weeks of process, don't you? I think that's reasonable. So um, as Easter comes, there's going to be some opportunities. And a big one for helping try to lead people to Jesus is Alpha. And I hope that you'll consider praying for Alpha, who you can invite, and whether or not maybe you should be involved. But I think the heart of the biggest takeaway that everybody can get today is this, that the fact that we are, we, all of us are at certain levels, in certain ways, certain areas are spiritually blind, ought to make us happy about how compassionate Jesus is to save those who don't see that well. And that if we can recognize that in lots of ways we're still fundamentally spiritually blind, that should give us hope that we might yet still see in those areas because we know that. Because Jesus has come to bring light. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you would help us to see. We pray, Father, that like the man in Bethsaida, um, who you touched and who eventually saw very clearly. We pray that we would be like that man in his end state at some point. We pray that you would teach us and that we would not just believe in you as the Christ, but that we would believe in you in a way that we understand who we are, what faith is, and what it means that you are the anointed, chosen king and savior of everything. And what it looks like to believe in you as the real Christ. We pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on us and open the scriptures to us when we read them and help us um, to teach each other and help us to not be self-righteous with our neighbors. I, we pray that we would, we would be an interested, learning, curious people so that we can see and that that would be attractive to our neighbors rather than repulsive to them. And we pray, Father, that um, in seeking to see better, that you would help us to lead other people to see you as well. In Jesus' name, amen.